today. The superintendent is with us again. I'm Andy Brownell. Kent Bickell, superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, joining us this morning. Good morning, Kent. Good morning. It's always, I always look forward to this. It's great to be I here. I do as well. I do as well. Um, school discipline has been, you've been used, taking a lot of time working on this issue, uh, both administration and the school board, and I'm sure at the classroom level as well. Uh, last week, there was a study session where the school board reviewed was it the final disciplinary statistics from the previous year? It was. We had given them the data at the aggregate level previous to this past week, but this week we released data by every single school in the district and by infraction uh, and by consequence. So it was a big data dump, way more than 100 pages in a PDF. Oh, wow. This year we're going to be instituting a new uh, data dashboards in the district, and so Next time we do this, we hope it won't be one big PDF file that people have to read through. But I did got emails over the weekend from community people who were read through the whole thing and found a couple mistakes and things like that. Um, but we're going to put it in a more user-friendly, dynamic format uh, going forward. But right now, we we gave it to them in the format we could give it to them. So, are there any key findings from this report? I think that there's a a, a couple things that are important to stress. When you look at the aggregate number of infractions or instance incidences, we, you know, whether it's disrupting the learning environment or, or fighting or something, we actually are at uh, the historic levels that Rochester was at pre-pandemic, you know, between three and 4,000 infractions a year, which surprises a lot of people because there's this perception that it's it's much worse. But it is worse at the middle school level in particular, um, and not all of our middle schools were exactly at, at the same uh, level. So I don't mean to minimize it, but I think it is important to put it in context. Um, in part, when you look at the data, during the period when we were in distance learning, really for almost two years, there was almost no disciplinary infraction because the kids weren't in school. And so I think that has heightened the degree to which people have perceived and felt that issue. And um, I know I'm kind of like a broken record on this, and we've talked about it before, but it's super important to say this is not unique to Rochester. This is a phenomenon right. school districts all over um, Minnesota and all over the country are grappling with. And we've been, and our school board has been super transparent about this. And there's a tension there because you don't want to sort of have people thinking our schools are out of control and that we're not engaged in this. But we know it's foundational. Kids can't learn if they don't feel safe. And so we're being very transparent, both about the data and then especially about the strategies we're putting in place to address the issue. So you saw overall the number of infractions were similar to what we saw before the pandemic. Did it break it down into the type of infractions? And have you seen any shift I guess what I'm getting at, are the infractions more serious that today or this past year than they were in the past? We actually saw the type of infraction was also fairly constant. It really was where there was a big change and we saw at the middle school level. So it was kind of where it was happening more than it was what was happening. Um, we did see um, the disruption of the learning environment, which can be, you know, an outburst or some, anything that sort of stops teaching and learning. That we did see uh, at an increased level um, compared to some historic norms, but not um, not sort of gigantically, um, it really was more, we have some work to do in our middle schools. And in some ways, when you think about that, it sort of makes sense because you had kids when the pandemic hit 
who let's just say were in um, third grade. So they're in a small elementary school. They're in uh, a classroom with the same teacher most every day. The pandemic hits and they for two years are not fully in uh, that environment. And then suddenly they're in a large middle school with different teachers every day and every hour in different subjects. That's a hard transition, even minus distance learning in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, uh, that's very explanatory. It it doesn't solve it, and we are very committed to lean into solutions. But it's in some ways not surprising that middle school is really where we where we saw that increase. I agree with you. I, I remember from my own days that that transition to middle school. In our case, it was seventh grade. Yeah. Eh, things started out a little bit rowdy. <laughs> yep. They definitely do, and it's uh, it's it's something that as we have brought at the end of the last school year, uh, all the uh, not just administrators but uh, diverse teams from all of our secondary schools, not just middle school but also high school, together to debrief on last year and look ahead to the next year. One of the big things that everybody concluded was going into the previous school year, 21-22, one year ago, basically from where we are now. People were thinking, oh, my God, this pandemic is done. We're going back to school. We're not wearing masks. This is going to be great. And we really didn't approach the beginning of that school year with the level of intentionality around essentially helping some of our kids remember how to do school that in retrospect we should have. And so we are trying this year to really learn that lesson and say from day one, we need to have clear expectations for behavior, but we also need to really, really lean into those connections, those relational connections, um, so that there is a sense of belonging. And frankly, there's 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 no strategy for reducing misbehavior, like having a teacher, an education support professional, an administrator really know a kid, um, because that just changes the whole dynamic of the kid's willingness to misbehave and the the adult's ability to hold them accountable for that misbehavior. So we're trying to make sure we're ready when we start uh, school not too long from now to from the very first minute of the very first day be programming for helping our kids uh, enter the school year in the right way. Does this go back to that belonging and behavior summit that was held, I think, in June, right? It does. It absolutely does. And and we really there. Each school has got a plan. We've released them in beta form. And before the beginning of the school year, we'll be making them available to um, our school communities and sort of the Rochester community in in greater detail. And I know one of the things we discussed months ago was uh, some consideration of restrictions on cell phones. Has that been fleshed out yet? They, you know, they, they had a big meeting on that yesterday, and I just got off uh, another one of these calls with two of our administrators, and they said we had more consensus across all of our schools than they ever imagined we would have on a strategy. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I know it is not the elimination of kids having the ability to bring a cell phone, but it is a significant increase in the restriction in how they are used. Okay. So next time I'm on, I will be glad to share the details you know okay i've got to read it and make sure that you know i'm okay with it the other thing about it is doing this in the summer means that getting student and parent perspective on that strategy is is tough and so while we are definitely going to start the school year with um 
uh, a different approach to cell phones in place, we are going to hear parent and student perspective on that and we're going to adjust as needed. But we came out of the last school year with pretty strong sense that we got to do something different uh, in terms of those phones, partly because they're just huge distractions from the learning environment and partly because they are used these days to amplify the behavior. You know, kids start streaming uh, a fight that fights have broken out in schools forever, but suddenly you have got the ability to send it in real time across the universe, really. And that's and we got to get a handle on. There was a teacher, and I am frustrated because I'm not immediately off the top of my head remembering her name. There was a teacher at Mayo High School last year who did an experiment where she had all of her students graph, like write down hash marks for every um, snap, text, um, tweet, whatever um, <laughs> the kids got in one class period. And then they um, sum, they summed it up and graphed it. And I still have it saved in my email, but it was stunning when thousands and thousands of distractions coming into that class in one period of the high school day. Um, and of course that's played out in every school hour after hour after hour for a lot of our kids. And it's it's not an effective learning environment. So no. we're gonna be doing some thinking about that in the year ahead. Well, that's at the high school level where there is at least some level of maturity taking place. Yep. At the middle school level, not so much. And I, I can't even imagine it's so easy to be distracted at that age anyway without having this electronic device beeping at you constantly. Yeah, it is. I'm, I guess it's, it almost seems like I'm teasing our new strategy when I haven't even read it, so I probably shouldn't be saying okay. it. Okay. <laughs> well, what I what was interesting was when they went into this, and this wasn't just one meeting. We've had a working group on it. Um, I was thinking we would have a strategy that was going to be different next year, middle middle school and high school, for exactly the reason that you're describing. And it's looking like um, the recommendation from our school leaders is going to be a similar strategy at both middle school and high school, with you know re- restricting when and how phones can be used. All right. Well, we will talk more about this topic, I'm sure, before yeah. the school year starts as things kind of coalesce into the actual policies and strategies that will be implemented. So I look forward to that. We'll take a, a, a break and we'll be back in just a moment with more of Rochester Public Schools Superintendent Kent Pickell on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. I'm on the road for approximately 100. Andy Brownell on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. The superintendent is with us this morning, Kent Pickell from the Rochester Public Schools. And uh, I know you as a superintendent and others in the school district have spent quite a bit of time this summer thinking about what happened in Texas and at Uvalde. Yep. And uh, it's got to be one of the toughest topics. I, I, I can't imagine having to plan for the unthinkable, but that's what you're doing. It is what we do. It, it's every educators, parents, students, you know, worst nightmare. Um, there are many areas in which I've been privileged to uh, discover really, really great people doing really good work in Rochester Public Schools. Uh, one of those areas is is safety and security, that we have got um, continual threat assessments and revisions to policies. We are this summer completing facilities upgrades to enhance you know, security in our buildings. There was a lot of interest in this after the tragedy at Uvalde. And 
I just felt it was the wrong time to talk about it because almost anything we said would have seemed to be casting aspersions on what happened in that tragedy in Texas. And and of course, my piece of it is less the law enforcement than the what the educators you know did and what the processes were. So we didn't talk about it much, but we've scheduled an update for our school board in August um, when school's not in session. Um, it's also the kind of thing that we need to be cautious about because it can create significant anxiety for students to be talking about this stuff while they're getting up and walking into our schools. And so we're not going to be able to go into great detail because we don't give away our playbook. Um, but we do want the community to know this is something we think about constantly. We have very close collaborative relationships with Rochester Police Department uh, and we we role play scenarios regularly. We train these scenarios um, and we want people to know that. Now, there's never, there's never a guarantee, um, but uh, we do want people to know that we continually look at best practices in the fields and uh, in the field and we, we take it super seriously. I know with my chats with Sheriff Kevin Torgerson and we've discussed this at length of the training his deputies go through, and I know Rochester police do the same thing, that the scenario, law enforcement scenario that occurred in Texas is extraordinarily unlikely here because of the training they do on a continual basis. I, I think what we're learning is that it almost is, if you had to take a look at what our procedures would call for, it's almost the exact opposite. And I think, you know, it's it's beyond tragic. And I think we as a field always need to learn from circumstances like that, you know, and how did that happen? But um, from what we can see right now, it, pretty much from the first moment, our processes, meaning ours broadly defined Rochester, not just the school district, but law enforcement, right. uh, would have handled things extremely differently. Do you ever hear from staff I guess where I'm getting at is I'm angry about this. I'm angry that the students have to have this shadow over them. I'm also angry that your staff at the classroom level has to has to undergo some sort of training for this possibility. I, instead of concentrating on what they're actually employed to do, which is to provide the children with an education. Is, is that something that you get feedback wise? We do. It mostly comes when we have to do drills, which yeah. we do, um, because we do need to drill for uh, the possible presence of a threat of this kind. And that is an incredibly complex thing because we we risk inflicting, I mean, at minimum anxiety, potentially trauma on very young kids. Um, and yet we also need to handle that. It, it's, it, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, you and I are kind of about the same generation and our parents' generation had the hide under your desk from a nuclear uh, warhead drill. By the time, like, you know, I was in school, they knew that that wouldn't help because we were all, you know, we were all gone. And so we weren't really drilling that. And you know, we just had fire drills. Um, today's kids have as a foundational part of their educational experience, these, these school safety drills that we try and do with as much um, caution and compassion. And as you say, I worry about the impact on staff as well when we do those things. And yet we also know that we need to do them. We're, we're required to do them, but we also know that we need to do them. But there's a, um, 
there's a tension in that. After Uvalde happened, we still had some um, schools that hadn't completed all of their required drills because you know they stagger them over the year. And I just said, don't do a school safety drill that has any kind of a uh, a shooter scenario. Just do a fire drill, you know, because we just knew that was the wrong time to do it um, at the time and. It wasn't as though one more drill would have, you know, made the difference. But uh, that was one of those micro decisions that comes up. And a few schools said, you know, we were going to do a couple more. And I just said, don't do it now. And I know even before you came to the Rochester schools, there had been steps taken to change the physical layout of the schools. Obviously, you can't make it perfect, but... Have you added anything additional? I mean, I don't even know if you can get into specific. I know you have to buzz in now. There's cameras and you have to buzz in. We're finishing the last. Yeah, I won't give specifics except to say that we have uh, incorporated that very prominently in our facilities upgrades and the support that the citizens of Rochester gave the school district for not just building new schools, but enhancing security in our schools has put us in a much better place than we might have been otherwise. We're actually finishing the last round of that work. Um, this summer, um, one of the things is it actually is not just a security issue, but one of the next generation things is we have a number of buildings and teachers and students uh, will tell you this already where cell phone reception is really, really bad. And back to the conversation we were having before the break, in some ways that educationally could be good. Like, you know, you're not getting it. Um, there is a security issue there. And so in a couple of places we've put in place, you know, what our sometimes called repeaters, where you can actually uh, make sure that you have a way besides like the walkie-talkie that the principal and the assistant principal have for keeping people connected in the building. Um, that's surprisingly expensive to do, actually. So that's kind of a next generation for us, making sure that you really do have uh, communication all the way through a building. But we're in a much better place than I think a lot of other school districts are in terms of our physical infrastructure and school safety. I just pray we never have to use what uh, you've learned. That's for sure. Yep. Well, Kent, we'll take a break for news. Uh, we'll be back after the break with more of the superintendent of the Rochester Public Schools on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Individual rates, coverage offerings, and savings may vary. Subject to term. Andy Brownell on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. And Kent Pickell, superintendent of the Rochester Public Schools. I can't believe it. There's you're going to have students in class this week well, at Longfellow. At Longfellow, our, our school with, I'm trying to use the term the balanced calendar because uh, it, it's 45 days of school and then 15 days off. It is often called the 45-15 calendar. But <laughs> yes. Somebody who doesn't know what that means uh, is kind of mystified by it. But um, it's, uh, it's a school calendar that has really met uh, a subset of families that that one school in Rochester's needs really well. Um, it also means that it's an outlier in terms of a lot of district scheduling issues. And it is it is getting started next week where the rest of the district is still hopefully having a really good summer vacation. Are they going to be in the new building? They are. Kids? Oh, wow. It's, it's, the staff's already in. They are feeling i haven't been over since staff has started which is just recently but um it looks great and by all accounts the staff are really excited about this beautiful new building and so they're back in class yeah buses running already 
So I suppose better first time we'll have to put that reminder out. Yep. You have to stop for the buses. Yes. That drives me crazy when people drive through the stop arms on the buses. <laughs> That's, That's one of the point. I agree. I agree. Uh, and um but then it, it's early September, right? Before the mm-hmm. real I, I it's not real start of the school year, but the main yep. start of the school year. Okay. Yep. We have all the new buildings will be online. Everybody will be there. They're telling us everything is going to be um, uh, ready and open, even though like if you drive by John Marshall High School, it looks awfully um, under construction, but they're telling me it's going to be ready. So um, obviously they have an expertise that I don't have at all, but um, they're saying we're going to be ready. And yeah, the buildings are great. We're going to host something in the fall to let people come in and see the buildings. And we've even been thinking a little bit about talking about buses, uh, kind of having a bus tour where people can hop on a school bus. We'll have to see how COVID is <laughs> playing out at that point. But the idea that community members who want to actually see the schools uh, in a single you know, late afternoon or early evening could get on our buses and go from one to the other. You could also obviously just just go visit one and drive your car. But it's something that we're going to definitely do in um, probably September, maybe, maybe October. We want to find the best date. We also want to make sure that any kinks we have in the new buildings have been worked out. Um, but I think it's looking pretty good. As a lifelong resident of this community, I, this has never happened before where you have this many new schools going online the same year. Yeah, it's really, and the fact that we're coming in on time and on budget um, uh, is really a huge tribute to how well this process has been managed. I saw on the school website that the school lunch program, the meals program, is shifting back to normalcy. It is, and I'm glad you mentioned it because this is a big change. We're going to be starting the uh, outreach to families I think literally next week, definitely very soon, the federal government picked up the tab for all lunches during the pandemic, and that's ending in the fall. And so we are going to be absent other funding, which we have not received, asking families who don't qualify for free and reduced price lunch uh, to pay for their kids' lunches. And um, I'm concerned that people need to plan ahead for that and they need to know it. We actually are also needing to hire staff to take lunch money again because we didn't need them for two uh, years and we had them doing other things because you just walked through and you got it for free. So if anybody wants to work, you know, four hours in the middle of the day at a register and greet our our students, we are hiring for that function. Um, This is a little bit in the weeds, but it's actually something that um, has big implications for um, our school district and many others. We get a good chunk of our funding based upon the number of our families who complete that form that gives their income that qualifies them for free and reduced price lunch. And every time I see it, which is a state mandated form, I cringe because it like it makes my head hurt. Um, and I'm a native English speaker um, to look at it. And we've tried to simplify it as much as we can. But if we don't have those families fill out that form, the, the, for instance, compensatory education revenue that the state of Minnesota gives to support the education of low-income kids doesn't come. One of the things I am hoping, uh, and you know, my this was an issue also in my former life as somebody who did research on education, is that we can find a better way to measure poverty in schools than a parent self-reporting and completing a complex form to say, here's how much money our family makes. It's it's not 
verified in any rigorous way. And it's incredibly high stakes for our school district and for others, because it does cost more to provide high quality education to a kid who has greater learning needs, which many kids who live in poverty do. And it's entirely contingent upon that parent saying, I want free reduced price lunch for my kid. So we actually had in our legislative platform for Rochester Public Schools last year, some urging the state of Minnesota to do things. There, They could look at census data, they could look at um, things like, you know, public assistance for what we used to call food stamps. There are other ways to baseline levels of poverty in a neighborhood or geographic area. And so I know this is way in the weeds and a lot of your listeners eyes are probably glazing over, but but we got to find a better way to measure uh, poverty than parents filling out the free and reduced price lunch form. So when you said it's high stakes for the school district, the compensatory funding that you're talking about that sends additional dollars to the individual schools depending on the economic situation of the students and their families. How much money are you talking about each year for the school district? I knew you were going to ask me that. I should know it. <laughs> it's terrible. I actually will. You know, I'm still pretty new. It's millions for sure. It's it's definitely millions of dollars. I should know what our compensatory revenue is. I will find that out and okay. get it next time. It's a chunk of money. It's definitely a chunk of money. It's yeah, it's millions, and I just don't want to throw out a number that's incorrect off the top of my head. So, um, and and there's a concentration factor, and so you get like if a school is eighty percent free and reduced, you get eight times as much compensatory aid as if a school is ten percent free and reduced. So there's a multiplier to it as well, and so it's for a school that's serving a lot of high need kids, and we certainly have some in Rochester. That's a really big source of additional support, and most of our schools reduce class size. They add, uh, you know, social workers or other support. Some add additional administrator using those dollars, and that's why getting those forms filled out is going to be key. And I'm nervous because for two years we really didn't have to worry about that during the pandemic, and so we really need to be engaging our families to try and make sure that happens. Even when my kids were in school, which has been more than a few years now, this process was taking place then. And there was always that push by the schools to make sure that the parents would fill these forms out. But there was resistance even among those who qualified to fill them out because of, uh, I don't know, a sense of pride, I guess. Totally. There's a stigma. There's a completely yeah. stigma that people don't want to do it. And so we know from a lot of research that a better way to do it is to have something be a default and then you can opt out rather than making people opt in. Um how that could work with the, the the family income piece is is it's not immediately simple, but we really have got to find a better way to do this than this. And this is not unique to Minnesota; it's you know everywhere, all over the I country. Was gonna, I was going to ask you. I imagine you're not the only school district that's asking lawmakers to fix this. And we're not the only one, I think, who's pretty worried about the fact that after two years of nobody needing to pay for any lunch. Uh, getting that free and reduced form may be a challenge for us this fall. And some families may be sending their kids to school without lunch money, thinking that lunch is free. And we wish it could be. And our nutrition services staff in Rochester are awesome. Um, But we can't, unfortunately, uh, carve out the dollars we get for teachers and textbooks and things and spend more on on lunch. So we're going to we're going to be charging for lunch again this fall. That's why nobody wants that job at the cash register because of what, just what you said. Uh, no, we need to, yeah. Uh, I noticed too that uh, you've kind of put a call out for hirings. Yeah. Are you, are you facing staffing shortages? I know school bus drivers are an obvious place because everybody is facing a problem with that. 
It is. I was just out at the bus barn last week with um, our transportation director and talking to the staff and knock wood, we are actually looking okay for drivers for the fall, which is a little bit of a surprise because last year, as you know, it was a constant struggle. But when I say okay, that means, you know, not no backlog, like, you know, it's looking. We are really struggling for what we call education support professionals, um, formerly known as paraprofessionals, <laughs> excuse me, paraprofessionals who ride uh, buses with our students with disabilities. We are way short on those folks and they play a critical role. Um, and we are short on the education support professionals who also work in our classrooms. So um, if you wanna have a very rewarding and uh, much appreciated uh, job working with kids in our schools, we've got openings. And so, and I'm hoping that when I'm back here in August, I don't tell you that our, my optimism about bus drivers was short. I hope not. You know, uh, but right now it's actually looking, it's actually looking okay, which is good. And our, our transportation uh, partner company, First Student has been very entrepreneurial about trying to get people to get their license and um, paying for that and giving them bonuses. So we have appreciated that creativity for sure. All right, but if you need something to do to earn some money, yeah, go go down to Edison Building and fill out a form, right? Please fill out a form. Okay. Well, we'll take another quick break, and we will return with the superintendent of the Rochester Public Schools, Kent Bickell, on Rochester Today, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Hi, my name's Eric. I work for Allcraft. Kent Bickell, superintendent of the Rochester Public Schools, joins us this morning. I'm Andy Brownell. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Uh, Kent, I saw on social media, you posted a tweet last week concerning, I guess, your mentor um, in a previous yeah. life. She's and I read, I read the, I guess, what I could read on your tweet about, about this person. And it, it, it piqued my interest because you've often mentioned that your background is research. And this is what this person was involved in. What's her name and can you tell us about her? Yeah, her the full name she writes under is Karen Seashore Lewis, but everybody that knows her knows her as Karen Seashore or Karen. She's just retiring from the University of Minnesota. She was a regents professor, which is the university's highest rank for any professor, um, an endowed chair. Um, And Karen uh, was my doctoral advisor, which is always a big relationship. But Karen's been somebody who's been, I've spent, uh, you know, 15 plus years of my life in that world of research, but I started as a high school teacher and now I'm back as a superintendent. So I've actually always been in this space between research and practice. I never wanted to be a full-time academic. Um, And Karen has been really passionate about bridging the divide between research and practice in schools. And that may sound like kind of a no-brainer, but it actually happens rarely and it really rarely happens well. Unlike healthcare, where there is kind of a pretty, it's not perfect, but there's a pretty direct line from what some researcher is doing at at a university or at a place like the Mayo Clinic and the way a doctor does an exam or, of course, you know, a vaccine that somebody gives, the research makes it to practice in healthcare eventually. We got a lot of good research and education that never makes it, you know, into practice. And one of Karen's passions has been bridging that divide. She's a sociologist, and so her big research has been on the way schools are organized. And earlier in her career, she was one of the first people to really document the fact that teaching suffered from being essentially a, 
a, a loner profession that teachers rarely were in what has come to be called professional learning communities collaborating with each other. And I know when I started teaching my first year, they, they can't, here's your classroom, here's your textbook, close the door and you were done. You just, there was no sharing of what works uh, across our schools. That has radically changed in the last 30 years. Um, and Karen's research was really pathfinding in showing that when you do that, it has big benefits for student achievement. Um, and another thing she's looked at is school leadership. Um, and some things that now seem kind of obvious were not obvious when she started that research, which is like the principal as dictator and single hero that is single-handedly going to boldly lead the school to high achievement for all kids just isn't reality. And that effective leaders are ones who distribute leadership across their schools and her most recent leadership has really been interesting. It's been on the benefits of caring school leadership. And when you have leaders who are caring leaders, it actually translates not only into more effective teacher practice, but more effective student learning. That's interesting because if you, I think some of that translates into the corporate world or the private sector as well. And it's rarely implemented in those areas either as far as leadership is concerned especially yeah. the caring part of it. Yep, and and it's the, the interesting thing about Karen uh, is that she really was one of the first people, and there have been many others, but one of the first people to really say the school is the unit of change, that it's not just the individual classroom, it's not just the district, but really that building with which has got the the most powerful uh, influence on students in terms of creating culture, you know, putting in place teaching and learning strategies that really work. And so a lot of these things may sound kind of obvious, but they're partly obvious because people like Karen have uh, rolled up their sleeves and done the research that's proved empirically that this stuff really does matter. And now it's the job of people like me to actually make it happen in schools and systems. So why do you think, Kent, that the research that is piled up on shelves at the U of M and other institutions is not being implemented at the classroom or the school level or district level? That's a huge, huge important question. W one answer I think is that we lack processes for it. We lack ways that uh, the insight that comes from some study of how to teach reading is actually gonna make it to a third grade teacher somewhere. Um, and we need to build much more effective ways of doing that. That's starting to happen, but um, it's kind of, in my world, usually the main vehicle for it is what we call professional development. You're a teacher, you go, you go to the lunchroom or you go to some hotel ballroom or conference room and you sit and you have someone talk to you about how to teach reading. And then the hope is you're going to go back and translate it in your classroom. But a lot of times you have just maybe begun to scratch the surface of understanding the idea. And then you get there and you actually really begin to figure out how it works when you try it. And that's where the addition of coaching and then those learning communities uh, comes in where you're actually debriefing with other teachers, you're being observed. That used to be heretical, the idea that you'd come into your classroom and somebody would watch you, you know, teach the lesson, unless you were being evaluated by your principal, which maybe happened for 15 minutes, like three times a year, something like that. Um, so I think one answer for the research to practice gap is the lack of those, those uh, good ways to, to disseminate it. I think a second is that when we do find something works, when a study shows, like just let's stick with that example, a way of teaching kids to decode letters, for instance, we find it works. We assume that because it worked in this school, in this classroom, in this study, we can do it everywhere exactly the same way. 
And then we find that actually the practice is good practice, but the kids in this school have got a higher percentage whose first language is not English. Or the kids in this school missed some knowledge they should have had in first and second grade. So now when we use the practice in third grade, it doesn't have the impact it had. And so I think a second reason why research doesn't get translated very often is we're looking for sort of the cookie cutter implementation. And it really is about adapting the research to your needs, which is sophisticated work because you don't want to. You don't want to throw out what was effective in the study, but you got to adapt it for your context to make it uh, work for your kids. Know your students and yep. what they're going to respond to. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you, when I read the piece, that what piqued my interest mostly was what you mentioned, the uh, the professional communities and and what you're talking about, the class. I I, I I was a little bit flabbergasted that that wasn't the case prior to the work that she and others had had done. Not at all. And it really, <laughs> sometimes people talk about like, uh, you know, education never changes. There are some areas in which we have made really dramatic progress. And that's definitely one of them. That teaching is no longer a considered a certainly not in Rochester anyway, a sort of autonomous individual activity that doesn't benefit or require sharing of practice among professionals. Um, and again, that that may seem like an obvious insight. When I started, I, my second year of teaching, I was the chair of the staff development committee in a, a large high school, which is absurd in retrospect. And it wasn't because I was such a great mind, it's because nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> professional development, when I started, was everybody went to their own workshop somewhere they wanted to go by themselves. It wasn't in the school. It wasn't embedded in your job. You just picked some, well, I want to go to this workshop and, you know, kind of I'll do it. Um, or you never did it at all. Um, and um, so when I was the chair of that committee, all it meant was really like going to the school secretary and saying, you know, this math teacher wants to go to this workshop and can we reimburse him? Like there was no sense that we have educational priorities that are driving the learning our teachers are doing. It was completely like the profession itself was at the time, an individual activity. Fascinating. I wish we had more time to delve into this. Maybe we will down the road, but uh... awesome. I have to, I guess we have to run. So the, the clock says so. So Kent, thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. It's always great. All right. We'll get together in August before school starts and find out more about what's happening in the Rochester Public Schools with Kent Pickell, the superintendent. And I will know exactly how much compensatory okay. <laughs> Rochester Public Schools gets when we get back together. Uh, okay. I may have forgotten. I was asking the question by that, but I'll if you bring it up, it'll come back quickly. All right. Thanks again, Kent. I'm Andy Brownell. It's News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM, Rochester Today. Meet your new co-workers. I'm Carly.